I had about five different ways that I wanted to start this talk. So I might share all five. <laughs> One, my husband's in Chicago tonight. And he was sending me pictures of his mozzarella parmesan and, <laughs> and his glass of wine. And he's at the Bulls game. So... Uh, there's one. <laughs> Part of me would love to share a meal with all of you and just sit and have a meal and talk, you know, have a conversation, which would feel so soulful to me, you know, on a rainy night to like eat some food and, and have a conversation. So that's one. The other was that said husband had, it was a group text with my brother and my father um, who he's adopted has, as his brothers and fathers because he's never had a father or a brother. And in that conversation, me, who's been the only girl in my family always, the only female in my family always, felt very unseen. So that's two. <laughs> the unseen female. <laughs> the third was how many different talks I would have loved to have given tonight. We could have talked about forgiveness, right? We could have talked about pain, for sure. We could have talked about um, feeling unseen. We could definitely, I mean, I, I, you know, it could go on and on and on. What else was I thinking about? See, so thinking is okay while meditating. <laughs> there's, there's the bottom line. We think when we meditate. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to talk about what I committed to a month ago, or maybe even two months ago, which is also an interesting part of what I want to talk about. Um, I committed to talking about, you know, sort of living an authentic life, which seems okay. It seems okay to talk about that. Um, but as that evolved, as I was sitting there, I was like, you know, and then there's undefended love. And then I'm not a fan of Tina Turner, but what's love got to do with it? Definitely <laughs> kept coming up. You know, it's just like, oh my God, it's unavoidable <laughs> when we're in a meta retreat. <laughs> um. And then another thing that was coming up, definitely because of sitting with all of, you know, so many of you, I, I always regret the people I don't get to sit with in, in meetings, um, you know, as I look at your faces and, you know, I know who you are, I know who I haven't sat with and I know who I have, um, you know, I, I'm sorry that I didn't get to meet you and I'm also honored by the hearts that I did meet and get to know a little bit better and you help me always become a better teacher you help me um, you know just understand the world we live in so that's also part of my talk thank you for that um, as so many of you have seen um, metta is probably the most difficult practice that there is you know, mindfulness is not hard <laughs> compared to metta. Metta asks so much of us. You know, it really asks us to push edges, to look at parts of ourselves, um, to see how 
we feel wrong in our love. Maybe um, how we don't know how to show up. Maybe how what we thought was unconditional isn't unconditional. And it's such a great truth teller, you know? It really asks us to um, look at the deepest parts of ourselves that may have been neglected, denied, abandoned, don't know how. You know, so often we just don't know how. And metta asks us, makes us, challenges us to check into all of that. And it's not easy. When I um, first started my practice, uh, I was not a Buddhist practitioner. I was a practitioner of Hinduism. And, um, you know, we're talking 25 years ago, I probably started my practice from the day I was born, as we all do. But when I really first, you know, formally started my practice, um, I had a teacher who asked me to sit for 90 minutes, two hours a day. And I did. And I was asked to take a cold shower first. (laughs) So she said, her name was Srinatha Devi, so I want to bow to her. Um, Srinatha Devi, white buffalo woman. And I was asked to take a cold shower first, and then I wore whites, and I sat at my altar for 90 minutes um, chanting. You know, so I did a lot of mantra and a lot of chanting. And I would do that um, at 5 in the morning, and then I would do that again at 10 at night. And the reason I was doing it at those times of day um, is because I was a single mom of two children. I was a single mom for almost 18 years. And so that was the time that I could fit it in. You know, that's the time that worked. And my practice was important enough to me. Um, my survival was important enough to me where I, I did fit it in, you know. Um, and... You know, when I think of that now and when I think of metta, you know, metta is like a cold shower (laughs) sometimes. You know, it's like stepping into that cold shower and it's saying like, wake up. You know, wake up to your life. Wake up to who who you are. Wake up to all the people in your life. Um, And I'm really grateful for that, that type of metta. You know, sometimes, and I and I know when I presented my first, the first metta practice on the first day, I was talking about a warm, <laughs> a warm bath experience. Um, but as we progress in it, we realize that it might not be that, right? It might actually have a lot of insult. It might have a lot of shame. It might have a lot of guilt. Um, and these are actually when we really look at our mindfulness practice, very valuable and important emotions. Um, shame we, is called hiri. hiri. Hiri and otapa are um, Pali words for, for shame and like the, 
um, after effect of shame, which shame in you know Western culture is thought of as a, an uncomfortable or hard word, but hiri is known as the recognition. Oh, like maybe there's something I need to pay attention to. Maybe there's something that I didn't do quite right. You know, like that's okay. Like that's okay to recognize that. And then the otapa is the after effect of that of said action, right? As we know, if we've ever said something, if any of you have ever said anything harsh to anybody, probably, maybe, maybe not, we know that there's an after effect both in our own system and then the other person's system, right? So this, this, this experience um, that metta might bring about in us, um, maybe this feeling of I wish I had, or I could do it better, or if only I had had, you know. This experience is, is very much alive. Um, one of my favorite similes, and I don't know why it's one of my favorite, because it's very violent and terrible. Um, <laughs> that might be why in uh, the suttas, about our ask, it's, it's like, I'm going to read it and then we can maybe discuss it. <laughs> but, but part of my question here is like, what and who is defining love for us? You know, and I'll, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, but what and who defined love for you? Actually, before I read this simile, I'm going to read the um, Urban Dictionary about love. <laughs> Out of 32, I'm going to spare you many, um, but here are a few that were kind of good. Avoid it, if at all possible. <laughs> Love is when your dog licks your face when you come home, even though you've left them alone all day. To give everything you have and not expect anything in return. A word used by many, but understood by few. A widespread, incurable disease, which is known to affect mind and sometimes the body. Symptoms may include affected judgment, lightheadedness, eye-watering, chest pains, an increased need to be with the person who infected you. <laughs> Is known as highly contagious and can be deadly. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet would attest to that, right? <laughs> Being lame together while not caring about what other people think. <laughs> Love is too good for words. <laughs> okay, here's the Buddha's version. <laughs> oh, this is called simile of the saw. Monks, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he among you who let his heart get angered, <laughs> even at that, would not be doing my biting. 
Even then, you should train yourselves. Quote, our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading these people with an awareness. Okay, anyway, <laughs> like you get it, right? Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. That's how we should train ourselves. So, like, that's the ask. I, I mean, I'm reading this from the Majjhima Nikaya 21 simile of the saw. Now, I don't know who wrote that or rewrote it or, you know, how long after. Um, so, yeah, where, where are we now? I've had some of you ask me today, like, what's the point? Why am I doing this? You know? And then and then there's also like that what's your option? Because it's too late for all of you now. <laughs> like you're, you're you're already in, sadly. Like it's it's too late. Sorry. You know, it's like you can't not know it. What you've already known you can't not know anymore. Now that you've explored it, now that you know. I mean, your option is to live a life of capitalist luxury. You know, that is, that's an option. It's there for you. But I don't know how it feels anymore once we, you know, once we've engaged, once we know. And so I, I just want to, like, ask a few maybe reflective questions um, you know, what does love look like for you? And who, who conditioned your idea of love? Was it your family? You know, and, and some of us came from families who really had ideas about who we were supposed to be, to be lovable enough. You know, were you, did you get into the right school? Did you look right? Did you show up in the ways that you were supposed to show up? Were you conditioned by society? You know, depending upon what society you grew up in, um, was your body the right shape, size, hair color, skin color? You know, so take take a few seconds actually to think about that. How how was how was love defined for you? And do you know? You know, is it your high school friends? Online dating? Money? How is love defined? And, and who, not only how is it defined, but who defined it?
And then, you know, based on that definition, did that um, inhibit your love? Because once love is defined for us, then who we feel free to love has a lot of boundaries and parameters. We become unable to see all of those that we weren't allowed to love before, you know? Maybe because they don't look familiar to us. Maybe because they're not similar to us. Maybe because we're scared of it. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about romantic, I'm not talking about romantic love. You know, we know the eros love, but I'm talking about the agape love. I'm talking about the unconditional love, the brotherly love, whatever we want to call it. Like, how burdened have we become in our ability to love based on our con- deep conditioning? Just something to consider. Who do we see and who do we not see? Whose bodies? You know, because there's this, there's this comfort, this comfort that makes us feel like we are familiar and can then therefore share space with other people. But what's it like to be uncomfortable and share space and love? And then my question for, for you, you know, that's, that's how we might, might other people, you know, we might other people because we're not familiar with them. But my question for you and looking at authentic love, you know, who would you be if nobody was watching you? I have a I have a 20-year-old daughter, but I think when she was around 16 or so, I painted her a flower, and I just wrote the quote, who would you be without somebody else watching you? You know? Because at 16, so much self, like, oof. Like, I, I was watching her shoulders change. I was watching her body collapse. She's a very beautiful woman and gets so much attention. And I was watching how her body would protect herself against the world, you know? And then we change because of how other people respond to us or look at us or act towards us. So who would you be? You know, just kind of remembering, reflecting maybe on a time when you felt your most free. Completely unobligated, uncommitted, passionate, lovely, jubilant, 
radiant, expressive. You know, that time, like, can you remember a time when nobody else's opinion mattered? And, you know, I, I'm talking about this mostly because at, at, I'm 54 um, this year. And I'm really finding that I'm not interested anymore in living a life that I don't feel free in. I'm not interested in not being me anymore. And I did that for a very long time and I didn't even realize it. I didn't realize it. And I've been a mindfulness practitioner for about 25 years. Right? But there's this way that, you know, like culture, society, family, history, conditioning really um, can, can just weigh us down. So my, um, my hope for my teaching, because mindfulness, like if we just look at the Buddha's teachings, it's so clear that we're being asked to see clearly what's happening right now. And it's not only to see it, right? Like, okay, great, I see it. Great, I see it. Great, I see it, <laughs> you know? Like, insights are kind of a dime a dozen. They really are. Like, I hate to <laughs> dismiss your insights, but, like, you're going to have lots of insights. <laughs> hoop earrings also. Afros and hoop earrings don't work with these microphones. You're going to have... <laughs> Um, I put my hair up, but I still have hoop earrings. <laughs> um, you know, these insights are beautiful and important. I, I don't mean to dismiss them by any means, but what you'll realize is you'll have them, and then you need to do something about it, right? It's like, great, now I know this huge thing about myself that I never knew before. I have this deep understanding. Yay, I'm free. But no, actually, I, I read somewhere that it takes a year for other people to see the change that you've made in your life. <laughs> so, you know, it's like we just have to keep like, doing it and doing it and doing it and then okay great now we get to live the change <laughs> we get to live the insight finally um anyway <laughs> yeah so there's a few there's a few things that I thought of that may, might be helpful I don't know how much time I have. I have a little bit of time. Okay. I didn't only think of these. The Buddha also thought of these. But I like what he thought of. And one of the things is don't lie. Right? If we're trying to live an authentic life, if we're trying to find ourselves, be ourselves truly, hmm, the fourth precept, don't lie. Like, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, but, I, you know, for so many of us, we were taught to be people pleasers, right? We were taught to um, maybe even tell small little lies so that we weren't, wouldn't hurt people's feelings. You know, um, 
we were taught to, I know I was taught in my family uh, because I grew up, my mom is black and my dad is Sicilian, um, but my mom did not want to be black. So my mom was a very light-skinned black woman and, and did a lot of passing. Um, and that's a whole other story if you want to hear about it. I probably have a Dharma talk somewhere about it. But um, so a lot of my life was to be seen but not heard. You know, it's like so, like she pressed my hair and we had very nice, clean clothes. And, you know, we looked great. Like me and my brothers looked great, but not heard. So there's this way that, like I was taught to lie through my mother's lie, right? Through the, through the generational lie. I was taught to lie. Um, but as we know, you know, when when we, you know, my mom has lived a life of hiding. Like she's hid her whole life. She's never been able to be her authentic self because of that. And so that's a, you know, that's a, that's a big lie. But as we know, even when we tell like, these like little tiny lies um, we have to do a lot of hiding pretending so what what would it be like what's it like to um, you know show up in our truth through our words but then there's also this way um, like how do we not truth tell to ourselves you know, how often do we not tell the truth to ourselves? How often do we just kind of like, oh, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Like we kind of like pat it over and make it okay or silence silence that voice because we think we're supposed to, because we have an obligation. Because, And I'm not saying that we don't have to show up. I'm not saying that we don't have to go to work and earn money and, you know, show up for our kids and all these things that we need to do. But what's the... You know, at what cost? You know, so where where does our mindfulness practice, you know, when we do hit those insights? Mm, like, then what? You know, like, what it, when we hit those big insights, which I know a lot of you have. Like, what, what can our follow-through be? Just a question, just something to, you know, pay attention to. You know, I, I know I've had a lot of big no's in my life this year. And I and I followed through with them, and it's been hard. It's been really hard. It hasn't actually felt comfortable. Um, but I know ultimately. And then, you know, that leads me into what does your body point you towards? Your body, your body, I'm telling you, it knows the truth. It really knows the truth. We've been talking about the sensations in the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. You know, just like the one of the reasons it is such a, an important foundation is because the sensations we feel here um, hold so much. There's so much feedback there. Like just let me, you know, try asking yourself the question. You know, I'm going to just throw some silly questions out at you that might not make sense but something like I love it when my boss humiliates me in front of my team like 
how does that feel? I love it when my boss humiliates me in front of my team. How does that feel in your body? You know, I adore having the stomach flu. Or ask yourself, just ask yourself a question that you know is false. You know, just just ask yourself right now and feel your body's response. Even walking down to the food line, something as simple as that. You see what you like? What does your body respond? How does your body respond? Something you don't like, how does your body respond? You know, our body tells us the truth. We don't always listen. And and then in the converse, you know, try asking yourself something like, you know, I love the ocean or... I was showing Aaron tonight the, uh, a picture of my grandson. Um, he's, not a, he's not my biological grandson, but he's my grandson. And I've known him since before he was born. And I showed him a, <laughs> a picture of him. And he's going to be in a... <laughs> he goes to a Christian school. <sighs> and he's wearing a halo and angel wings, which is... <laughs> so cute um anyway the feeling that I got seeing him was just so pure you know and I love it when he holds my face I was telling her also tonight he didn't know my name he just knows me as grandma you know and uh, last month we were swimming in a pool and he looked at me and he's and he's calling me grandpa grandma and I said do you know my name and he's like grandma and I said, but you, do you know my name? Grandma. And I said, my name is Joanna. And he said, Grandmama. You know, and it's like, so now I'm Grandmama. <laughs> and, you know, just like that, I know my body, I know how my body responds to that. You know, I just, it's, it's evident. And so this is just a, it's just a truth, Right. How can we how can we pay attention to that? Um, and then another thing is, um, you know, accepting the parts of ourselves that maybe we don't feel are lovable. Maybe we don't necessarily like, maybe that we don't understand or we don't get, you know. Like, I, I've learned so much about imperfection through my friends. Not because they're imperfect, but because they accept my imperfection. And the, and I'm I'm sometimes I'm astounded. Like sometimes I get a little bit blown away. You know, just like wow, really, you still like me? I, I, yeah. I don't even know what to say about that. But can we can we do that? You know. On my um, 
40th birthday. I had a, a huge party. I had a huge beach party. It was so much fun. Um, and, you know, for years before my 40th birthday, every time I got a present from somebody, it was like really imperfect. It was like so wrong. And I always felt like, how could somebody give me this? Like literally one some of you will understand this. Some of you might not. But one year, my dad gave me a Sambo. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> I won't even explain it. It's just so inappropriate. My father's white. My mother's black. My dad gave me a Sambo for one of my birthdays, thinking he was giving me something important. Um, but I always <laughs> got... I don't know. Anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. But anyway, every year for my birthday, I would just like always get presents that I would want to throw in the trash, right? And I would always feel a little bit insulted. Why doesn't anybody understand me? Nobody really loves me. You know, like there, there was like this real victimhood in it. And, and then like the more I was, then I started practicing and I started like sharing and I started being more me and I started like being more in my integrity and my authenticity and my truth and my, you know, all of these things. And I, I didn't really realize that I was doing that um, until my 40th birthday presence. <laughs> and it was so funny that that was my, the teller, the truth teller for me is every single present that I got was spot on. They were perfect. And what I took away from that was like, oh, right. It's because I am finally showing up. I'm finally showing people who I am. I'm finally sharing me with them. So of course they can see me. And of course they can give me, I know it's silly, but of course they can give me the perfect gift. Right? Because I finally, I finally showed them. It's not their fault. They didn't know me because I wasn't showing me. So finally, like this authentic me was coming out and then others could see this authentic me. That's a good thing. So I'm going to, um, one of a, a very important poem to me. by James Baldwin. Um, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace. Not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring, and growth, right? So love takes off the masks. So this is this authentic self. What, what masks are we living behind? And then when I started looking at masks, I read, like Oscar Wilde writes, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. The rose says, be yourself, not your idea of what you think somebody else's idea of yourself should be. 
And then Andre Brethimo says, we all wear masks. And the time comes when we cannot remove them without removing some of our own skin. So it's, that's kind of a big deal. Right? These masks. So, you know, truly the Buddhist tradition asks us for a, a sort of renunciation of these masks. That's the beauty of the renunciation of being on, on these retreats, even though sometimes the silence can seem harsh and alienating. It gives us an opportunity to step away from, you know, all these ways that we need to show up in the world. All these masks that we wear. All these personalities, these expectations, these obligations. This is what silence and retreat and renunciation allows us to do. And then get down to the purity. The depths of our authentic, true selves. Like, you know, I, I remember when I, I realize, like, who am I without my suffering? Who am I without my story, my suffering story? That's how I connect to people. That's how I share. Now what? Hmm, I'm boring. <laughs> you know? So really uh, allowing ourselves this, um, yeah, ripping off the mask maybe for these few days. Not needing to be, be anything, any way, anyone. And then that way we can, you know, we have the opportunity to show up to show up so much more authentically. So I'm going to uh, finish with the Bodhisattva vow and then we'll chant. So the Bodhisattva vow is a big ask here. Once we find our authentic selves, May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a raft, a boat, a bridge for those to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary. May I be medicine for all, for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles. May I bring food for the hungry and sustenance and awakening, enduring like earth and sky for countless eons until all beings are free from sorrow 
and all those are awakened. Let's sit for a few minutes. So we're going to chant the same. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.